Good morning, Redemption Arcadia. If you're joining us in person, we're super happy to see you. Um, just remember to wear your face coverings and stay as socially distanced as possible. Know that it's tough and weird and awkward, but um, it just helps care for those in our congregation that may be more vulnerable. And um, yeah, so uh, we're going to sing a couple songs together. Um, please stand and sing with us. stop working never stop you never stop working even when i don't see it you're working even when i don't feel it you're working you never stop you never stop working you never stop no even when i don't see it you're working even when i don't feel it you're working you never stop you never stop working. Stop, Waymaker. You are Waymaker. Miracle worker. Promise keep light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. Waymaker. Miracle worker. Promise keep 
Light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. So um, this next song is a new one. Um, we've sung it a couple times, but um, I've just been listening to it a bunch this week and thinking about the lyrics, um, how sweet they are. Um, this song is called Run to the Father, um, and it just talks about um, how we run to the Father when we're in need. And we so often think of God as this big, like, figure that we can't, like, communicate with, and, like, he's kind of outside of our realm. But I've been thinking about it so much this week, how sweet it is that God is close to us and present um, like a father is. And so um, I'm just going to sing that chorus real quick, um, and then we can hopefully sing it together when we get to it um, the second time. I run to the Father, I fall into grace. I'm done with the hiding, no reason to wait. My heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend. So I run to the Father again and again and again and again. carried a burden too long on my own and I wasn't created to bear it alone I hear your invitation to let it all go
a surgeon, my soul needs a friend, so I run to the Father again and again and again and again. Sing it one more time. I run to the Father, I fall into grace. Done with the hiding, no reason to wait. My heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend. So I run to the Father again and again and again and again. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. The reading for today is John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You may be seated. I love that second song, that new one that you did. That's, that's really good. Yeah, sure. You betcha. Hey, Arcadia, how you doing? Welcome to the largest... 10.30 service we've ever had in August of 2020. You're the first, actually, so thanks for uh, coming. Apparently, we're getting the word out somewhat. That's good. Uh, my name is Frank. If you're new here, I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, Redemption Church is one church with nine congregations, so uh, in different ways, we're meeting all over uh, the state of Arizona right now. Uh, we are the Arcadia Congregation. Uh, Redemption Church is gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Uh, before we get started, I actually do have some uh, announcements. First of all, you have noticed uh, Tyler Thompson is not here. He's on vacation. And so uh, Caleb decided to kind of strip things down today. And, and in honor of the sequel that I guess is coming out uh, eventually, it was like um, Caleb and Frank's excellent adventure today. So we've been enjoying that very much. So um, I guess you're the Keanu Reeves of that, of that, of that uh, equation. That's good. Um, I want to remind you about a pretty big night Wednesday night. Uh, we didn't know that it was going to be this big, but it's gotten really big. Uh, we're going to do this Schraderism thing Wednesday night here in the sanctuary. 
and we need you to RSVP if you're going to show up in person. And we would encourage you to show up in person, but uh, we can only take 80, and then we have to cut it off. And uh, we decided to go ahead and reinstitute the RSVP uh, because we started getting nervous after I contacted Sandy Schrader, Tom's widow, and said, hey, we're going to do this. Maybe, you know, you want to come. And then she got um, the Priority Living of Arizona uh, uh, email list and sent out the event to everybody on the Priority Living email list. And then the Redemption Gilbert, which is the church that Tom planted 30 years ago, uh, they found out about it and they started promoting it. And in some respects, I think they're promoting it even more than we are. And I don't know if anybody's actually going to drive all the way from Gilbert to Phoenix. Every time I have to drive to Gilbert, I cry. But they might drive all the way in. But um, it just, the thing just kind of blew up. And so uh, that's great. So there's three ways that you can um, enjoy this celebration of these 15 or so things that we've selected that we want to talk about that Tom used to say all the time. They're the iconic Tom Schrader sayings. Uh, you can come in person if you RSVP. Um, you can watch the live stream at 6.30. We're going to live stream it. And then sometime Thursday or Friday, we'll get the recording on our YouTube channel. So if you can't participate on Wednesday night in either way, then you can, you can watch it later on. But it should be a, a wonderful time. And in fact, once I found out that Sandy was going to come, we altered it just a little bit. Uh, we're going to probably have the first, uh, I don't know, 50 or 55 minutes will be um, myself, Joe Ponce, and Kirk Vitingoff talking about the sayings and telling a few stories, but then we're going to invite Sandy Schrader up for the last 20 minutes, and we're going to let her kind of clean up everything that we screwed up. So that's essentially what we're going to do. It should be a great night. And then the other thing I want to remind you, and you know this already, but we just want to keep getting the word out. Um, uh, our 9 o'clock service just started growing. And so we recognize the need to add a second service. So we're now having two services, 9 and 10.30. We were a little surprised this morning because the same number or more people came to 9 uh, as they had been when there, was still a 10, when, when there wasn't a 10.30 offered. And now we have all of you too, so this is exciting. We're doing 9 and 10.30 for now. Those are the key words during a pandemic, for now, because things change all the time. We have no idea what we'll be doing in another three or four weeks. Could be the same thing, but we could pivot and have to do something else. But just stay in touch through email or our website or whatever, and you'll know what's going on. And I know that um, Tyler and Heather have been trying to figure out how to start up uh, some semblance of children's ministry during the services, maybe sometime in late September or October. We're, we're still working on that. Anyway, we're excited about the new service times. So uh, the third thing I want to mention is next Sunday is going to be a very special uh, Sunday. Before the pandemic started, we had announced that uh, a guy named Josh Watt, who has been serving at Redemption Gateway for more than eight years, uh, he's been their student pastor out there. Now, let me give you some scale. Um, Redemption Gateway's student ministry, that's middle schoolers and high schoolers, not kids, just middle schoolers and high schoolers, has 350 uh, on average attending every Sunday, 350 of these middle schoolers and high schoolers. Plus, you know, you think about their parents. Josh has been leading a large church, in a sense, for the last eight years. He, um, in the last couple of years, has felt very called to plant a church in the north central part of Phoenix. Uh, he's lived there in the past. He kind of grew up there, and uh, he's been leaving, living out in Queen Creek, but um, he talked to the leadership at Redemption Church, 
And both the lead team, which I'm a part of, and the executive team for Big R, which I'm not, uh, looked at Josh and said, well, we would like you to plant that church as a redemption church. Um, that's how highly we think of him. And uh, so he is going to be planting still, even in the midst of this pandemic, he is still going to be going forward with planting Redemption North Mountain. And so if you're wondering ge geographically where, kind of think um, as a center point as like 7th Street and Thunderbird. And then maybe somewhere, I mean, I'm sure he'd do, you know, 40th Street and Greenway if something came available there. And I'm sure he'd do 19th Avenue and, and Thunderbird if something came available there. But essentially it's that North Mountain or Moon Valley uh, area that he's looking very closely at. He's already moved up here from Queen Creek, his family. They're living at about 32nd Street and Cactus, which is like five minutes from uh, 7th Street and Thunderbird. Um, five families from the Gateway congregation have moved with him, sold their houses in Queen Creek, why wouldn't you, and moved up here uh, to Phoenix to be with him and help him plant. We are the closest proximity congregation, and so uh, we believed that it would be helpful and important to uh, have Josh come in and kind of give us his vision for what he's going to do and uh, be able to talk to people in this congregation about it. There may be people in this congregation who would like to participate in the very difficult but very good work of helping to plant a congregation. It's different work than you've ever experienced before. It takes a very special person to be a church planter. I'm much better at just coming in and taking over something once all the hard work has been done. He believes and, and has demonstrated that he's that guy that does can, can do that hard work up front. And so we wanted to give him an opportunity to talk to our congregation in case uh, God was leading any of you to think about maybe helping out with that. You could uh, have a chance to speak to him directly. So next Sunday at both services, he's going to speak for, this is what I envision, he'll speak for 15 or 20 minutes and then I'll interview him for another 10 or 15 minutes. That'll be the sermon and then we'll pick up John again on uh, August 30th. So big big uh, Sunday next week. So we'd encourage you to come. If not, um, uh, we'll have his contact information online uh, in, in, the, in the wake of that. So, Gospel of John, uh, first five verses today. So turn there, and as you're turning there, we'll pray together. Lord God, again, we're thankful for your word and its truth, and we're thankful that um, um, your church has not only survived, but has thrived in the midst of the challenges and uncertainty of this pandemic and everything else that's been going on. And so uh, we just want to be faithful to your word and to the gospel and to, kind of, to continue to proclaim it. And we're going to be able to do that through this Gospel of John. We're excited about that. And so it's my prayer, as always, that, that the Holy Spirit would take the Word of God and apply it to the hearts and the minds of the people of God here, and that you'd move me out of the way, just use me to communicate your truth in some way. Any, in any way that I get in the way, just take me out of the way as it enters the hearts and minds of your people. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as promised last week... Uh, I want to do a little bit more introductory work in the Gospel of John. It's helpful to set the context. I'm going to talk about different things than I talked about last week. One of the things I'm going to do is spend some time comparing the Gospel of John to the other Gospels, so it'll help you to read all four of the Gospels really well, I think. So we're going to have some more introduction, then that'll be it for the introduction. The rest of the, this series, the other 48 weeks, we're just going to go right to the text. Um, but... We're going to do this for maybe 15 minutes before we get to those first five verses. So um, thinking about comparing the four Gospels, uh, I want to talk about who the audience was for each of the Gospels that the Gospel writer was trying to reach and what their message was. 
and how they differ. Because that will help us to read each of those Gospels in a way that understands them better. So Matthew's Gospel is primarily written to a Jewish audience, to people who really understand the Hebrew Scriptures uh, frontwards and backwards. And his message is very Old Testament. It is that Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament had been promising for hundreds and hundreds of years. He is that light that God is now revealing to us uh, from Isaiah. He's the fulfillment of the scriptures. And then Mark, Mark is very different. Mark is written actually as a subversive message to people who understood the Roman Empire way of things. Now for me, in our current context, with all the politicizing of everything that goes on, um, I feel like Mark's gospel is also a great message for us today. Mark's gospel is a message for us to understand, those of us who seem to understand the United States way of doing things, Mark's is a message that says, no, the gospel of Jesus Christ transcends government, it transcends uh, national leadership, it transcends kings and presidents and Caesars, it transcends all of that and is bigger than that. And it's Jesus who is Lord, nothing else is Lord. So in his context, he's saying, subversively, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Caesar used to walk around and say, I am Lord. He, he actually claimed divinity. And Mark is saying, no, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, and not the government. So don't put your faith in Caesar. Don't put your faith in the government. Put your faith in Jesus. Luke was written primarily to a very sophisticated and educated Greek audience. And in particular, it was written to a guy named Theophilus. We see that at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke and at the beginning of the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote. He says to my excellent, uh, most excellent Theophilus. And Luke was written, his message was that Jesus turns the sinful fallen world upside down. Everything you thought was right or could think was right, Jesus kind of turns that all upside down and you need to follow him. And then John we have his message. We had his message last week. It's, it's chapter 20, verse 31. John says, I have written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, and the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. John's gospel is not written with such a narrow, specific focus, but rather John's gospel is written to anyone and everyone. And he writes it in such a way that Hopefully, everyone is going to be able to understand what it is that he's saying. And we'll get into a little of that in these first five verses today. So he's writing anyone. Uh, if you're Jewish, you should be able to understand it. If you're Greek, if you're Roman, if you're an Arcadian, if you're a Martian, it doesn't matter. He's written it so that you can understand it. Uh, the great New Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberger writes this. The readership envisioned by John's gospel transcends anyone historical, ethnic, or sociological setting. And the way somebody else has said it, somebody in Redemption, which I really appreciate, one of the other lead pastors, he says it this way, the gospel of John is not a drive-by diatribe of religion, but rather a laser-guided testimony of Jesus. That is exactly what the gospel of John is. He's, he's not just throwing stuff out there and hoping that it sticks. It is a laser 
guided testimony of who Jesus is. And further, John did not intend for his gospel to be a chronological, biological, biographical, psychological treatise, but rather it was simply to present the claims of Jesus. And so sometimes you might be reading the gospel of John and wonder if he's gotten things out of order. He did that on purpose because he's trying to build a bigger narrative and a bigger story. And, and, and he wants to just present the claims of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah that the Old Testament pointed to. And in fact, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And Jesus makes that claim. In John chapter 10, which we'll get to in three or four years, in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father, we are one. And the way that's actually written in, in the um, in the Greek, is, is it, it's letting his audience, which were the professional religious people, the Jewish professional religious people, it's letting his audience know, it's not like we're just friends, we are one and the same, we're the same essence, uh, I am God, is what he's saying. And if you're not sure if Jesus' message was received, read uh, forward just a few verses and you see that the Jewish religious leader's response to that statement is, we need to execute you for blasphemy because you have claimed that you are the same as God. You are equal to God. I run into people occasionally who will tell me, Jesus never claimed to be God. And, and you know, I always just want to ask, have you read the Gospels? Because he does claim to be God. And that was the whole problem. Jesus was not executed because he was a political dissident. I know that people want to try to advance that narrative. That's not why he was executed. He was executed because he claimed to be God. That's why he was put on trial by the Jewish religious professionals. But what is also presented in John's gospel quite strikingly is Jesus' humanity. What is clear from the testimony of John and Jesus himself is that Jesus was fully human as well as being fully God. Jesus wept. Jesus experienced hunger. He experienced fatigue and pain and doubt. All the things that human beings experience, yet he was without sin. That's the only thing that he did not experience or engage in. And in John's gospel, we are told not only of the pre-existent nature of Jesus, which makes him God, and we're going to see that in the first five verses here, but we also see Jesus' humanity clearly manifest. In fact, there are some scholars that, that submit that part of the reason John wrote his gospel was to correct an early church heresy known as docetism. Docetism is the teaching that was rampant in the late first century, early second century um, in the church that either Jesus was not God while he was human. He had to put off everything of being God while he was human. So he could never be fully God and fully man at the same time. So when he was human, he had to put all the God stuff off. Or uh, he was actually still God as a human, but what we saw, what they saw as human, was, wasn't real. It was, it was a vision or some sort of phantasm or a celestial substance, but it wasn't really a human being. But he was both human and God at the same time. And John should know. If anybody should know this firsthand, it's John. John was one of the closest people to Jesus. In fact, probably his closest friend. He's described as the disciple that Jesus loved. So John wasn't writing his gospel from afar. He wasn't writing it from hearsay. He wasn't, he wasn't writing it as a college term paper. But rather, he wrote this as, as Jesus' best friend. If you wanted to get to know me, but you weren't able to talk to me, 
who would you go and talk to? Well, obviously, it would be Pastor Tyler James, because I've worked with him for three years. No, I'm kidding. You would go and talk to my wife. We've been married for almost 33 years, next month, 33 years. We've been married. She knows me better than anyone. And so if you wanted to know about me but couldn't talk to me, that's who you'd go talk to. So John knew Jesus best, and that's why we can trust this gospel, another reason why we can trust this gospel. A couple more items that will help us in the next uh, several months. Um, you, when you talk about the four Gospels, uh, some people say that three of the Gospels are synoptic. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are synoptic. That word synoptic, so same eye. In other words, those three Gospels seem to view Jesus with a same or similar eye. There's lots of overlapping material in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We find many commonalities there. John is often referred to simply as the fourth gospel. If you're ever reading an essay or a book and somebody says in the fourth gospel, they're talking about John's gospel. And the reason is because much of John's material is different than those other three gospels. Uh, Luke has also has some unique stuff, but it is still way more similar than dissimilar to Matthew and Mark. But John's is quite different. Not contradictory, but different. And the reason is because John's Purpose for writing was way more universal than Matthew, Mark, and Luke's. And his purpose was just believe. Just believe. So here are a few of the differences. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are way more about Jesus' Galilean ministry up in the north, whereas much of the setting of John's gospel is down in the south in Jerusalem. So that's one difference. Another difference is that there are a number of signs and miracles in John's gospel that don't appear in the other three Gospels. And then finally, Jesus' teaching in John is presented in such a way that it could be comprehensively and easily understood by a way more diverse audience. In other words, Jew and Greek alike. And, and we're going to see this again. I'm going to unpack some of that for us in the first uh, five verses. If you read Matthew and you have no understanding of Hebrew culture and Jewish uh, scripture, you're probably going to struggle reading Matthew. John takes that Hebrew scripture and Hebrew and Jewish culture, and he infuses it with a Greek understanding so that everybody can pretty much handle it. But there is one thing that's common in all four Gospels, and that would be the passion narrative. That's Jesus going to the cross and the resurrection. That should tell us something, that all four Gospels cover that. Uh, this Gospel is also written some 10 or 20 years after the other three Gospels were written. John probably wrote this in 85 or 90 AD. John lived into his old age. He actually, he's, he's said to be the only apostle who died of old age. All of the other apostles were martyred for their faith. It's not that they didn't try to martyr John. They tried to kill him. In fact, there's one uh, historical record that said that uh, they once boiled John in oil in an attempt to kill him because they wanted him to quit proclaiming the gospel, but somehow, miraculously, he survived. Uh, that event kind of reminds you of Daniel chapter 3 when the three guys go into the furnace and emerge unscathed, kind of interesting. Um, John died in his late 80s or early 90s, uh, and for some time he was the pastor of the church at Ephesus, quite a bit after Paul uh, helped plant that church and wrote to that church and Timothy was around that church. How'd you like to be a part of a church that had those three guys as your former pastors? That'd be, be like being in a church where Tom Trader used to be. Anyway, so um, the scholar, again, uh, uh, Kostenberger, he also argues that John's gospel is clearly written after the destruction of the temple 
in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And because of that, John is also submitting that Jesus should be and must be and in fact is the new temple and center for worship of God's people. And we're going to see that actually played out in the last three verses of chapter 2, which we're actually going to get to in, in September. And finally, before we get to those first five verses, here's this. There are three words that if you put them together, I think kind of sum up the theme of John's gospel. The first word is the Greek word pistis, which we talked a lot about last week. It's the word that means believe or trust or have faith. That word is used 90 times in the gospel of John. If you were to sum up the gospel of John with one word, it would be believe. Uh, the second word would be logos, which we're going to look at in more depth today. Logos is the word word. But, in, but in, for the Greeks, for their philosophers, for their cultural concepts, the word also means message or divine expression. It means meaning. And it also means reason that brings order to chaos in the universe. So that sounds like God. Okay? And then the third word would be sarx. That's the Greek word for flesh or body or human. In other words, incarnation. John is going to tell us in chapter 1 all about the incarnation. Uh, Jesus, God, became human, became man, became flesh. And, and so that word is also important. So let's get to it. It's been three or four hours uh, since Caleb read the passage, so let me reread it so we know what we're talking about. These very short five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In case you didn't get it from the first verse, he reiterates, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, the word, Jesus. And without him, the word, Jesus, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You think about what John's doing there in the beginning, Listen to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Perhaps a good summary statement for these first five verses, opening up uh, the gospel of John, is that John really wants the reader to know two things. Number one, that Jesus is the agent of creation. All things were made through him, by him, for him. And secondly, Jesus is part of the triune God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and those two things are non-negotiables for John, and they are non-negotiables for the Christian faith as well. Both of those are very important. And it's a good thing to remember that John doesn't write anything without great purpose. There isn't a single word in his gospel that doesn't have significant purpose. So more words. You may feel a little word study abused, but I got to talk about a couple more. We mentioned belief and word and flesh as key words for the gospel, but in these first five verses, we also need to take note of the words translated beginning and light, as well as the word word. So here's one of the things that John is doing in this opening paragraph. These three words in these five verses, beginning, light, and word, logos, those three words were very strong in Greek culture. They were important words for Greek philosophy. They talked about these words all the time in the Greek culture that John, as a Jewish guy, lived in his whole life. And so what John is doing 
is he's infusing these Greek words and these Greek concepts with Jesus and the Hebrew scriptures so that everybody can understand them and not just Jews. He's, he's essentially retelling the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2 with an evangelical flair that Greeks and the Greek culture could also understand without having to do a lot of study. So let's go a little bit deeper into this word, word, the word logos, message, divine expression, order, not chaos. Go back to the beginning, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Think about it this way. Genesis 1, God spoke everything into existence. He used words, the word, to create. Genesis chapter 2, God tells Adam, I want you to name every creature that has been created. That must have taken a long time, just imagine that. But he had to give words to every creature that God had created. So there's that logos again, the words. Also in Genesis chapter 2, think about Adam's reaction to seeing Eve for the first time after he is awoken from this sleep that God gave him. He wakes up and there's Eve. And he says, whoa, man. N not really, but he... It's really cheesy, I know. But anyway, he looks at Eve, and he's overcome by her beauty, and he engages in what? Impromptu poetry. When I do premarital, one of the most awkward moments in premarital, you guys remember this, is when I look at the guy and I say, the first time you laid eyes on your fiancé, what did you do? Did you break into, out into impromptu poetry? And it's usually, mm, no. No. Did you have a song in your heart? Yes, yes, I, yes, I had a song in my heart. Yes, I can say that, sure. But he breaks out in this impromptu poetry. He uses words to define and describe the undefinable and the indescribable. That's what he does. And then in Genesis chapter 3, the adversary comes to Eve, and he uses words to deceive Eve and make her doubt the goodness of God and causes Adam and Eve to eat the fruit. He uses words. And then you see in verses 1 and 2 that the word was with God. That word with is also significant, believe it or not. What John is pointing to there is this covenantal triune community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons in perfect covenantal community which is really a picture of the community that we should have with other people. It's hard, though, because we're fallen and we're steeped with sin, but that's kind of the model, this, this community where they're shy towards each other, they yield towards each other. You know, the Father is always pushing forward the Son and the Spirit. The Son is always talking about how great the Father and the Spirit are. The Spirit is trying to tell us about Jesus and the Father. They're shy towards one another. They submit to one another. They're, they live in total humility and, and humbleness with each other because it's a covenant relationship. It's a difference of, of between being for someone and being with someone. I can be for someone, but when things get a little bit tough, I'm not so much for them anymore. But if I'm with them, that means I'm with them even when it's really hard, even when it doesn't benefit me. It's like being a Chicago Blackhawks fan. They're down three to nothing right now to the Las Vegas Golden Knights in their series. I'm still with them, even though they're just getting totally destroyed by Las Vegas. But I know a lot of fans are already walking away. We have a lot of that in Phoenix. The Suns bandwagon hasn't been this big in a long time. They're 8-0. Oh. Where were you when they were 9-63, and 63, for crying out loud? 
That's the difference between with and for. It's covenant. And here you go. I, I, I wish and I hope and I pray that our marriages would be more with than for. Because with is covenant. It, it means that even when it's really hard, you're going to hang in there. And then verse 3, he writes that all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So John is saying that God the Father's creative activity in Genesis chapter 1 was carried out and completed through his son, Jesus, the word, the Logos. So you look at what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, Jesus, the word, Logos, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. We talked last week about the different, the different style that Paul and John write in. Here's Paul saying essentially the same thing that John said in one verse. But, but Paul is like, you could spend hours studying this theologically. You, you could literally break down these six verses in Colossians and do a 10-week series, or at least I could. You could do a 10-week series on this. He's, he's so deep, and he writes kind of like, you know, a Greek philosopher, but here's John. He's just, he's giving it to us in more poetic and circular terms, but he is certainly pointing us back to Genesis chapter 1 and helping us understand who Jesus is. And then verses 4 and 5, let me reread those in John chapter 1. In him, Jesus, the word, was life, and the life was the light of, the, of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, before we talk about, talk about the connection between light and life, I want to say this. Verse 4, study it, look at it. It confronts every other thing that you and I believe will fulfill us and give us life. Not that these things are bad, but we need to understand that ultimate life, genuine life, and ultimate fulfillment and contentment only comes in Jesus. So the things that we pursue, again, not necessarily bad, but... Things like wealth and status and politics, any other worldly thing, good or bad, that we pursue trying to fill that God-shaped void or vacuum in our life, it, they'll never be able to do it. Only Jesus gives us true life and fulfills. And the connection between light and life, I think, is easy to understand, but it's helpful to understand John's um, background and why he writes this. I mean, you have the full weight and force of the Old Testament scriptures behind him writing this. We know that life cannot exist without light in the physical world. And the Bible often makes the same connection in the spiritual world. To have spiritual life means that we need the light of revelation. We need the light of God, of Jesus, to chase away the darkness that clouds over and covers our ability to see the truth. Um, simple illustration, even this morning, I take a lot of vitamins. I'm trying to make it to like 70 years old. I take a lot of vitamins, and I'm, I'm pulling out my vitamins this morning, and I drop one into the drawer in the kitchen where all of my vitamin bottles are. 
and it's one of those little vitamin D translucent pills. She it drops in there, and I heard it go in there. Can't see it. I had to get my phone out and get the flashlight going and shine it in the drawer to be able to find. And it took me a while, but I needed the light to reveal the truth of where my vitamin D, because I need it for my glowing skin and bone structure. You know, it's the same thing though with God. He's he's got to come and reveal by pulling away the darkness and shining his light into the darkness of our sin and our fallenness. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, God says this. So this is what John has in mind as he's writing this. God says 600 years, 700 years earlier, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You know, there's a pattern in the Old Testament as you read through it, especially the historical books supplemented by the prophetic books. There's this pattern. Israel is with God. Israel begins to inch away from God. Then Israel just outright rebels against God. And then Israel is disciplined and suffers the consequences of walking away from God. And Israel starts to turn back to God, and then Israel walks again with God. And then they start that whole cycle over again, and it just goes on and on and on. Early in the book of Isaiah, there is an invitation from God to his people to walk with God in the, in the light. Walking with God is walking in the light. It's the light of truth, the light of wisdom, the light of relationship and authenticity and, and of joy. But Israel, the nation of Israel, as they are prone to do and as we are prone to do, refuses the invitation and they begin to rebel. And so the Lord's discipline comes. And the people walk in darkness, and they don't like the darkness. We don't like the darkness, but like the Israelites, we're pretty certain that in our rebellion, our rebellion is going to be different. Our sin will go undetected. Our walking away from God won't matter to him. We're going to do it different than anybody else has ever done it in history, so it'll be better for us. We're convinced that in our rebellion, the darkness will either not come or we'll actually prefer the darkness to God's light, and it never turns out that way. And it neither did it for the Israelites. They, they eventually ended up in Babylon, and they hated it there. And specifically in Isaiah's context, the Assyrians come in and sack the northern kingdom, Israel, in 722 B.C. But in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, God makes a promise in the wake of this darkness and discipline. At the end of Isaiah chapter 8, God tells us that he's been hiding his face from the Israelites because of their rebellion, and this has resulted in darkness for them. Why does he do that? Because he's a mean and capricious God? Does he do it because he enjoys watching people suffer? No. It's because he has invited his people over and over and over and over and over and over and over to walk with him, and they won't do it. Over and over and over and over and over again, they refuse to do it. And over and over and over, in spite of that, God has still saved his people and delivered his people and showed him his incredible love. God desires to be with his people, but sooner or later, because he is a God who loves us, he's going to go ahead and give us what we want. This is true also in Romans chapter 1. Read the second half of Romans chapter 1, and you'll see the same pattern there. At some point, God is going to say, you know what? I love you. And so I am going to give you exactly what you want. You don't want anything to do with me. I've been trying and trying and trying. You don't want anything to do with me. Fine. You can do it yourself. And that's when the darkness starts to come. It may not come right away. It, you may have a season that's really good. Hey, this is great. 
but eventually you'll start to pay the price. And that's exactly what happened to the Israelites. But with repentance, God is saying in chapter 9, verse 2, comes the light. Repentance, it means to turn away and move back towards God. And that's what Paul is calling people to as well. Turn away from your sin. The Gospel of Mark. How many times in the Gospel of Mark does Jesus say very simply, repent and believe? That's his message in the Gospel of Mark. Repent and believe. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, God makes the promise that his light will come for those who repent. And God explains that this light will eventually come as the Messiah. Later on in Isaiah, he says, by the way, this light is coming as the Messiah. And here in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, John is saying, the light is here. That Messiah that was promised to us in Isaiah is here. Jesus, the word become flesh, is that light. It's the fulfillment of the messianic promise. And that same invitation is now here for us today. So the question is, have you been walking in darkness? Have you found that all this stuff in the world, no matter how much of it uh, we get, we earn, we achieve, even if it's good, it never seems to ultimately fulfill that, you know, that God-shaped vacuum, that void, that longing, that pining for something that you just can't seem to describe or articulate? Well, that's Jesus. And that's what John is telling us. Word become flesh, light of the world, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, the one who bore the cross for our sin and then came busting out of that tomb, resurrected to new life three days later. Have you come to Jesus? That's our question and our message. Believe in Jesus. Let's pray together. Caleb will come and lead us during communion. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And again, we just, we just ask that we would take these truths, that we would take this, this narrative this understanding, and we would apply it to our hearts and our lives, that we would pursue you as you pursue us, that we would have faith in you as you give us faith. God, I pray that we would just be drawn closer to you, and I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you are with us uh, on the live stream, uh, I hope that you've got your elements prepared for taking communion here. We're going to have the individual little cups that we get to wrestle with again. And once you're done uh, taking your elements, um, if you feel like it and can, you could stand and sing uh, with uh, Caleb. He's uh, resurrecting a song we haven't done in a while, but it's a great, great song. And it's perfect for this message and for this time. So when you're ready, you can start singing with us or you can just prayerfully reflect as you do that. And I just want to remind you that it was on the last night before Jesus was betrayed that he's with his friends and they're having that last supper it was the Passover meal actually but he changes the meal significantly he holds up the bread and he says this is my body broken for you do this in remembrance of me and then after they had eaten the bread he held up the cup of wine and he said this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you for your sins so that you have forgiveness do this in remembrance of me and Paul tells us that as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. By doing this, we are both confessing our sin and celebrating our new life in Jesus. And we're also declaring, giving testimony that we are aligned with Jesus.
So let's do that now. Beginning of time With no point of reference You spoke to the dark And fleshed out the wonder of light And as you speak A hundred billion galaxies are born In the vapor of your breath the planets form If the stars were made to worship, so will I I can see your heart in everything you've made Every burning star, a signal fire of grace. If creation sings your praises, so will I. God of your promise. Don't speak in vain, no syllable empty or void. For once you have spoken on nature and science, follow the sound of your voice. Oh, and as you speak, a hundred billion creatures catch your breath Evolving in pursuit of what you said If it all reveals your nature, so will I I can see your heart in everything you say Every painted sky, a canvas of your grace. If creation celebrates you, so will I. So will I. So will I. If the stars were made to so will I If the mountains bow in reverence So will I If the oceans roar your greatness So will I For if everything exists To lift you high So will I those stars were made to worship, so will I. If the wind goes where you send it, so will I. 
down my heart through all of my failure and pride on a hill you created the light of the world abandoned in darkness to die and as you speak a hundred billion failures disappear Where you lost your life so I could find it here If you left the grave behind you so will I I can see your heart and everything you've done Every part designed in a work of art called love. If you gladly chose surrender, so will I. I can see your heart a billion different ways. Every precious one, a child you die to save. If you gave your life to love them, so will I. Like you would again a hundred billion times. But what measure could amount to your desire? You're the one who never leaves the one behind. Thanks again for being with us and worshiping with us today. Uh, if you could exit that door, we would really appreciate it trying to keep all of this circular stuff going. And we're going to kind of wipe down everything as we do after every service here to keep people safe. And now let this be our prayer and our blessing as we go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forever. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. Redemption Arcadia, we'll see you next week.